0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at ExploringMormonThought.com and Facebook.com forward slash ExploringMormonThought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. This is the last chapter in the third volume of God and Gods. and since we've gone over a Mormon view of deification and then some arguments that have been brought against that. Now we're going to talk about this last chapter, which is the scriptural basis for the doctrine of deification. And so you started off with a caveat. So you say, I'm not naive enough to believe that an appeal to scripture can resolve the thorny philosophical and theological issues that arise from the doctrine of deification. And then I'll just sum up this quote here, I guess. Basically, you point out to begin with that, You understand that scripture is—they're kind of pre-critical, and they're not meant to be theological proofs. And a lot of the authors have differing views on the same subject here. And so, yeah, you said there's because there's a wide range of views among scriptural writers, and there is even possibly conflicting views that are difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile. And they're not necessarily a logically consistent tapestry of doctrine. You say so. But even though it's messy and often confusing, especially if you just take out a scripture and what's called proof texting, which is just take a scripture out of context. And if you read it out of that context and out of the viewpoint of the culture that it was meant for, then, you know, obviously people use the, this kind of proof texting of scripture to prove any number of points that are completely opposite of one another. So even with that, though, you say, nevertheless, it seems to me that surprising possibilities arise from a close reading of the texts related to the view that humans are gods or partake in the divine nature. So before we dive into the scriptures we're going to go over, what else do you have to say just about the basic idea of using proof text, just the idea of scriptures as proving things, I guess?
1: Well, I think anybody who's dealt with scripture knows that they underdetermine any particular point of view. That is, there are numerous different kinds of views that can be argued. And given the play that there is in any text, it would be naive and extreme, it seems to me, to believe that we could solve the very difficult issues related to the logical possibility of deification, what it means within any given tradition, merely by referring to scriptures. Rather, we can look at the scriptures to see how they gave rise to a doctrine or why the people reading the scripture thought that it would support the doctrine and how it probably worked within its original culture and we can look at how it enlightens us. I mean, we read scripture now not merely to do textual archaeology to determine what the original, you know, what it meant within its original context, but what we can learn from it now. And I think that we can bring some light to understanding the scriptures, and and the scriptures can bring some light to understanding the Mormon point of view.
0: Okay, great. And then also before we dive in, just to give an overview of what we're going to do, each of these scriptures we're going to go over, we're going to hit on the different views of deification that we talked about a couple times ago. So there's weak deification, moderate deification, and then robust deification, which again, taken in certain way is the most in line with the mormon point of view in the book you go into depth on the weak and the moderate ones more so but here we're probably going to just give the basic sketch of how those points of views would interpret these scriptures but probably spend the most time on the robust point of view so anyway with that jacob's going to take the first one here
2: Uh, so the first scripture we're going to be looking at uh, speaks about partaking of the divine nature, and that's Second Peter one, verse four. And this is from the King James Version. It says, According as his divine power hath given unto all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then, uh, again, bringing up what you brought up before, that the divine nature is shared as a matter of grace from God. So let's go ahead. First, let's talk about, uh, on a view of weak deification, what are we seeing in in this scripture?
1: On weak deification, we're seeing that what we partake in, in, in the context of the scripture, if you say, you know, forget that it. it says unto life and godliness and glory and virtue, but just say, you know, what it's saying is that we've escaped the corruption of the world through lust. So what it's really doing is imparting to us a divine awareness of sin and restoring us from the fallen nature that we have so that we no longer are subject to sin. And that's essentially what it means on weak So
2: nothing in terms of an actual divine nature, but more of a nature just away from
1: sin. Well, it's something of a divine nature because in their view, we couldn't overcome the fallen nature that we have, the natural man, because of original sin. We would be, remember, we're not even free to really make choices before that. And so what happens in, in the moment of justification by grace, a new life enters into the believer, and that life is the life of Jesus Christ that restores the pre-fall status of a human being so that they're no longer subject to original sin, but now they can begin to live a life in Christ, and they can begin to make morally righteous decisions. But not, It would be a misstatement to say, well, we can make good decisions whereas before we can't. We can now make decisions that God counts as righteous, whereas before he wouldn't count them as righteous.
2: Okay, uh, so with that, let's go ahead and move on to a moderate view of deification.
1: In moderate deification, we always had free will, and so our free will isn't being restored. Rather, we've chosen to be a partaker of the divine life. And so the divine life enters into us, and we partake of the energies of God. That is, the very life the, the very life that gives life to us is the life of God. It's the divine life. And it begins to restore the image of God in us that was lost in the fall. We have the likeness of God, which is our free will and our ability to make moral decisions, but now the image of God begins to be restored, and it's through the energies of God or the zoe or life of God that enters into us. And as a result, what the scripture is saying is that we partake in the divine righteousness. It makes us over into new people, and the divine nature in us is the mortal life that now is imparted to us in the life of a righteous person and it's divine righteousness that is imparted to us and so in this sense we we partake of the divine nature
2: okay and now uh, unless there's anything else to say about that one let's go ahead and focus more on the the robust
1: deification so in robust deification what it's saying is that we are partakers of life and godliness and because of that we are partakers of the divine nature in a literal sense that is the nature that god has and and remember the word that is being used here physis in greek for the word nature has essentially the same semantic field that the word nature has in english and it means to be like it means that we are like god in kind and so what It is telling us is that we escape the corruption of the world because now we begin to grow in the divine knowledge, which also is referred to in the scripture through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and we partake of the same glory of God and virtue. The virtue that we have isn't something that's simply imparted to us. We partake of the virtue of God because the divine knowledge gives us a new life in God with divine knowledge that begins to grow in us. And the divine nature is growing in us in the process that we call sanctification, which is, remember, a synthesis of our works in God's grace. What it really is is growth in the light, in the glory, in the power and knowledge of God. This life force, this Zoe, which is a genuine power and energy that, it, that enters into our life, commingles with our life, and gives us new life, makes us over in God's image so that we are and we're in what really is intended as God's image. We are his children. We look like him, and we will have his stature, full stature, when we fully mature in the nature of God. So we begin to be partakers of the divine nature in a literal sense, in the sense that we literally are now partaking in the divine life because we have inherent capacity as uncreated intelligences to do so.
2: All right. And that partaking of the divine nature, again, is participating in the same type of relationship that the Godhead
1: is with each other. Exactly. In other words, the kind of divine life we have is living in the loving, interpenetrating unity of the divine persons.
2: Excellent. Uh, well, those are uh, the three different aspects of divine nature for that verse. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, one that we've discussed before, but we'll go back to Corey for that one.
0: All right, and so this is the famous one that talks about ye are gods, and it's both Psalm 82 and then Christ's use of Psalm 82 to answer accusations of blasphemy against him in John chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Just as a reminder, I'll read through the relevant parts of Psalm 82, which are verses 1 and 6 through 8. So in this translation it says, Elohim takes his stand in the assembly of El among the gods, and he pronounces judgment. And then in verse 6 it says, I declare, though gods you may be the sons of Elion, which is sons of the Most High, all of you, but you shall die like Adam and fall like one of the beings of light. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for yours are all the nations. Again, just the context here is there's an assembly of gods. This is the sons of the high god El and comes and they there was, at least in the Ugaritic understanding, there are these 70 gods that were placed over the different nations of the earth and here the high god comes in judgment of them because they haven't been being righteous and they haven't been showing the proper love and care for their duties and so he sentences them to become mortal and it shows that gods can become mortal which comes into play in the gospel of john where christ himself uses it when the pharisees accuse him because the, uh, when he goes to the temple and he kind of makes the announcement that basically he's the son of god and they're like well it's blasphemy what are you talking about? You can't be a son of God because you're human. And so he cites the scripture to kind of introduce that actually, yes. And so let me read through this argument you make, and then we'll talk about the different views real quick. So I'll just read the whole thing. So you say, the meaning of what the gospel of John asserts can be best grasped by looking at the structure of the argument in John 10. The argument has the following claim and response form. Jesus's claim I am one with the Father. The Jews' response to that is, that claim is equivalent to a mere human claiming to be God, and that is blasphemy. The Jews' implicit assumption here is that no human could be God. And then Jesus' reply is, Jesus agrees that his claim entails that he is God, even though he is a human, and thus he rejects the Jews' implicit assumption that humans can't be gods, because Psalm eighty-two six shows that gods can become mortals. And Jesus' implicit argument is as follows. 1. Sons of God were gods, according to Psalm eighty-two six. Two, The sons of God were required to relinquish their divinity to die like mortals, from 82.7. And therefore, gods can become mortals. So, Jesus is also additionally claiming that I am the Son of God because the Father is in me. And the Jews' response to that, as before, is, that claim is also blasphemy. I guess just a distinction to point out is all Jesus is claiming here is that he's he's showing a scripture saying clearly gods can become human because it happened in this psalm. And so what I'm saying is not beyond what your religion already accepts, Pharisees. So there you go. Anyway, expanding on both of these, what would you like to add
1: before we go into the different views? Nobody else has broken down the argument like this. I mean, the kind of thing they say about why, why he's citing this, I mean, he cites it as a subterfuge, he cites it as a sleight of hand. When we get to the kind of interpretations that have been given historically and by top biblical scholars, the, the argument was always just nonsense to me. It's like, well, why would they put such a, an atrocious, ridiculous, even outlandish argument in the mouth of the Son of God? And so I I looked at it and I said, well, okay, what really is going on here? And what we have is the claim and response form that is very common in the honor and shame society. And the Jews are, of course, you know, this isn't the only time they accuse Jesus of blasphemy in the Gospel of John. But what's interesting is the way that Jesus here disarms them, essentially, by quoting Psalm 82 and 7 by saying that, well, ye are gods. He's not quoting the entirety of the psalm. He's assuming that the entirety of the psalm is already in mind because they know the psalm. And so when he's saying, well, the scripture says ye are gods, he's saying more than just, well, the scripture says ye are gods. He's saying, look, Psalm 82 actually is asserting that humans can become gods, and and, and even you, (laughs) ye are gods. And so what I want to point out in addition is the context that Psalm 82 had in its original context, and its original context is somewhat hard to decipher because it relies on very early Ugaritic ideas of God, though it takes it in, this, in the frame of development after El has already taken over the sole rulership of the world. He's the sole king at this point because he's deposed the 70 gods. So the city-states that had gods are now not recognized as being ruled by gods. They're all ruled by El Elyon. And in that context, it means something quite different than the way that Jesus is quoting it in the Second Temple period with the Jews and their working knowledge of what the scripture means in that context. And so essentially, he's reminding them that a part of your tradition already includes the notion, I'm not claiming anything outlandish. But the, I think the most, and I want to point this out, I think the most revealing fact about this entire pericope in the scriptures is that Jesus doesn't deny what they assert. And he says, I am one with the Father, and they will, you can't be one with the Father, there's only one God. And they don't assert that, well, it's blasphemy because there's only one God. They don't assert that. They're saying it's, it's blasphemy because you make a human a God. That's exactly what the text says. So they're not rejecting him asserting being one with God because of monotheism. They're rejecting what he says because the notion that a human being could be divine is outlandish. And, you know, he both begins and and ends with this. He begins with saying, I'm one with the Father, and he ends by saying, the Father's in me, and that's why I'm one with God. He's not saying I'm identical to God the Father. He's not saying I'm the only God. In this context, he's not asserting the kind of things that a lot of people say he's asserting. He's clearly not asserting those things. What he's asserting is, uh, essentially, that I am one with God in the sense that I partake of the divine nature, and you do too. As I said, the most revealing fact is that when they say, well, what you're asserting is blasphemy, he doesn't reject and say, oh no, it's not blasphemy, and he doesn't reject their assumption. He doesn't say, well, the assumption you're making is false. That's not what I'm asserting. He's rejecting the assumption that a human being can't be God, and that's, that's what the entire structure of the argument is about. That, as far as I know, has never really been recognized. I mean, I've read a lot of commentaries on the Gospel of John, and it just the form of this argument doesn't seem to be understood by those who are reading it, even those who are the top-notch scholars. Now, that's arrogant of me to assert. I read this Scripture better than any biblical scholar ever has. I know that's, that's beyond arrogant. But I think it's very enlightening to look at the form and structure of what is taking place in the dialogue and the argument that is being made and the implicit assumptions that are being accepted and rejected.
0: All right. Okay, so now I have some quotes here on the different views of deification. So as you said, you know, different Christians have to make sense of the Scripture and why it's being used, and if they don't use that argument, then what could Jesus possibly mean here? So first off, you say, Believers in weak defecation assert that Christ is merely using an ironic figure of speech referring to Israelite judges as gods. For example, an evangelical, Robert Bowman, argues that the term gods refers only to Israelite judges by virtue of their position as judges, which gives them authority to exercise the divine prerogative of judgment, and that the term is ironic because it is addressed to the wicked judges who die like men. So... This is a common, like, I I don't know if any of our listeners, if you have ever tried to use this scripture as some sort of argument against kind of an evangelical critique of the Mormon view of deification, but they have a completely different interpretation, meaning they think that when Jesus is talking about ye are gods, Psalm 82 itself was just referring to unrighteous kings because kings were called gods at some point or something, so that's a very common view among other Christians.
1: Yeah, in fact, what they're what they're saying is that, you know, he's just saying, well, isn't it, isn't it ironic that human judges can be called God, so calling me God is no great stretch, is essentially the argument, right? But I've just never been able to see that argument as in, in ever being cogent or even making sense of the text. I mean, frankly, it's why I went to the text in the first place, because this kind of argument never seemed to actually include the text. <laughs> It never seemed to make any sense, and it still doesn't make any sense to me. It's a misreading of the the Scripture at best. And I think more properly what we're looking at here, clearly in the context of Psalms 82, originally it didn't mean judges. But even in Jesus' day, it didn't mean judges. I mean, the bottom line is that they didn't call their judges gods. And this kind of placing that kind of argument in Jesus's mouth again is making such a weak, ridiculous argument that it's like, well, you know, Jesus must be a real fool or something to make this kind of an argument. Because why would that convince them? And and I think it's a good question to ask. It's like, well, why would he expect that they would accept this response? Why would he accept that it would make any sense to them at all? And that that I've just never understood. And so, in my view. And I'm not the only one who sees it this way. In light of the findings at, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that it was common among some Jews to believe in human deification in a very strong sense, even stronger than moderate deification. They believed that they would become members of the Divine Council, that by their rituals they were becoming members of the Divine Council. They believed that they were gods in a very literal sense in the in the very same sense that was asserted in Psalm eighty two, and given the thought world that Jesus grew up in, it's very likely that he had that in mind as well. But I think more importantly, this isn't a figure of speech that occurs anywhere else in the literature of Second Temple Judaism, so calling it a figure of speech or an ironic figure of speech is just ignoring the whole context of the language.
0: Yeah, and so I think more recent scholarship would definitely agree with you there. Okay, so let's go to a moderate deification view, and it's similar in its assumptions there, but in addition, you say they may argue that the reference to gods here refers to humans who have Adam's glory before the fall restored to them by doing God's works. For example, the Catholic scholar Jerome Nere argues that Jesus refers to those to whom the word of God came as gods, who are those to whom the word of God came? All right, that's a question. So, I mean, this is an argument you go into more in the book here, so that's just a clip, so you might have to explain that. So where does it say to, where, does it, where are they getting that from?
1: He came to the children of Israel. And remember, Jerome Nere is one of the primary scholars looking at the honor and shame culture. And what he's doing is, is asserting that it was a Jewish tradition the earliest attestation we can find is during the Mishnahic period so it's much much later than the new testament but he said it's jewish tradition to believe that when god came and visited the israelites and the word of god came to them through moses that they were made divine in the sense that they became god's people and that's what jesus is referring to okay
0: and then moving on to the robustification i mean i kind of already went over the argument there of how robust deification would see it but in addition to that you refer back to when we talked about chapter two in this book you say i argue that it is extremely likely that gods and the bene elohim or sons of god in psalm 82 refers to gods in the council of Elion or most high god known in ugaritic and early israelite thought it is likely that they were thought of as sons of god in some familial sense There is no theogony or story of the origin of these gods in the Old Testament. And you say it's important to note that the gods are already present as members of the divine council of gods with whom Elohim dialogues in his deliberations to create humans in their earthly existence, for example, let us make man in our image and likeness. So the view that the gods were already present before the fall is confirmed by God's statement affirming that man and woman had become like one of us, the gods, by gaining knowledge of good and evil. And so, you know, that can be read into it. These gods seem to be pre existent with God because they at least the is in the text, there's no beginning of them, even though they're referred to as sons of God.
1: Yeah, so what I'm doing, I'm placing this in the original context, the Ugaritic context, which I think, you know, the background of Ugaritic mythology to better explain an original context which i think informs the mormon understanding of what psalm 82 is actually referring to it's referring to the council of gods the council of el elion and so in that context you have divine beings who are the 70 sons of el elion and they are set over the world to be its rulers but they do a very poor job they don't treat those over whom they've been set justly and they don't take care of the poor and the widows And so God deposes them and says, look, I'm going to take over. And as a consequence, I'm going to make you human. And so they're made like Adam, as as the text says. And what we're looking at in that context, however, is very different than what I think Jesus was saying. Though I think Jesus, if we, I think in the second temple context, Jesus is using, and remember this very scripture, Psalm 82, is quoted in the Melchizedek scroll among the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it recognizes Melchizedek as Elohim and Yahweh, a fully divine being who was the leader of God's armies and, and who comes and is victorious when God's kingdom comes to reign on earth, which is what Jesus was all about. I mean, if we learn anything from the Synoptic Gospels, not so much the Gospel of John, but the Synoptic Gospels, that is that the historical Jesus taught and focused on and everything he was about was bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. Now, the Gospel of John refers to the kingdom of God, but it's not the center of Christ's predication and teaching. What is the center of his predication and teaching is that he is the one who has come down to represent the glory of the Father and to impart that same glory to his followers. And that, that's really what is being said here, is that the glory that the Father has, he has, and he's even saying, look, you can't say that a human being can't partake of the divine nature. When he's saying, ye are gods, he's not referring to the judges per se, or the the Pharisees that he's speaking with. He's referring to the scripture itself to remind them that the notion that human beings are gods themselves who have come from a heavenly world, which he claims to have done, by the way, in the Gospel of John without any question, claims to have been pre-existent before Abraham was, he says, I am. And so, in this context, what he's asserting is precisely that I'm one with the Father. I partake of the same kind of unity with him. And he later teaches the same kind of unity as one that all of his disciples can partake in. In this context, the Psalm means exactly what it says ye are gods. They are the gods are our gods become mortal, and we're in the process of learning how to become gods more fully and so that's what i take it to mean in second temple judaism is i think especially the gospel of john the relationship between the dead sea scrolls of qumran and the gospel of john and the epistles of john is very tight there's a much closer relationship between the gospel of john and the dead sea scrolls than between the synoptic gospels and the dead sea scrolls the influence um, a common world of thought is very strong between the two. And so I think that the best way to look at that is in context of what this group of Jews was teaching about the glory of God and the relationship of God at Jews of Psalm 82, and in most particular, the notion that human beings become part of the divine council, which they clearly, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls taught in numerous different ways.
0: Okay, great. So the next one is divine sons who are like Christ, which is First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. and. Just to read that. says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God? Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear that we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And the, the he that is referred to, obviously, is Christ here. So let's just go into the different interpretations right off the bat. So first, you say a believer in weak deification will undoubtedly once again focus on the results of a belief in the possibility of becoming like Christ and stop there.
1: So why would they take that interpretation? Well, just because that's how they interpret They interpretate. Let me restate that. That's not an English verb. This is how they interpret all of these scriptures. But in this one, remember, it ends, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So what they're saying is what it really means is that we become pure, that is, unstained by original sin in the same way that Christ is. And so we are now justified in God, and that's what it means. Justification just is this form of deification. They forget the context of the second coming and the the process of sanctification that's really being referred to here.
0: And then a believer in moderate deification will focus on a rich vein of theological insight regarding the nature of divine sonship and what it means to bear the image of God. So if you could expound on what you mean by that.
1: Sure, going back to the orthodox thought, The Orthodox have icons in their chapels, we call them chapels, have them in their churches, and it's a very rich part of their culture. An image is something, and that's what icon means, it's Greek, it's also part of the Russian vocabulary I believe, for referring to the image of God, which has been restored in us. But the image of God is much more full and complete in the moderate deification or the Orthodox tradition and so what it means to be a son of god is to partake of the divine nature so that that god's divine life now grows in us and so the kind of life we had is no longer human life that's been transformed and what it means to be a son of god is is to have the glory of god fully within us we're not changed into the kind of being that god is but to the extent that the glory of god can glorify and and impart the divine nature to human beings that's what happens in deification. And so the Orthodox tradition in general has had a lot more to say about theosis or deification than, for instance, the Protestant tradition. The Catholics are kind of between those. And th- there's a strong sense of this. The Wesley brothers and Methodism had a very strong sense of theosis as well because they studied Orthodox thought. And so they brought this kind of recognition of a stronger notion of theosis and deification with them. And what they write about it, by the way, I think is very enriching and well worth reading. It probably is part of what I think drew Joseph Smith to Methodism.
0: All right. And yeah, and then you point out, like, even though it's, it's beautiful and they get at a lot of good stuff in there, unfortunately, you know, it still comes down to that metaphysical monotheism, and it doesn't really work since we can't be anything... Like an uncreated being, or we can't take on the properties of God and such that we talked about last time. So,
1: in that tradition, it's even more stark, simply because the recognition of the via negativa—that is, that we, you know, we we can't say anything positive at all about God. It's not merely that you know there's only one God and we can't really be like God. It, it's more along the lines that. God can't even be conceived, and anything that we would say about him would be totally alien to what humans are. And so it's a very different kind of way of conceiving God than one would think in a tradition that also teaches about moderate deification, but approaching the kind of robustness. I mean, they want to speak in terms of robustness. But when they really get down, you know, they they say all these amazing things about what it means for a human being to be made divine and in the likeness of God and to have his image restored. But when they start with the qualifications about how we can't really be like God, it kind of ends up being kind of empty, actually. Uh, I've learned a lot from reading them, so I really have no desire to to say anything negative about them. I have a great deal of admiration for their theologians, especially on these issues, theologians like Lowski and others. But I've never been able to make sense of this dichotomy in their thought, frankly.
0: Yeah, and this is just a personal insight. I think, because I serve my mission in Ukraine, and the Orthodox Church is the main church there, and I think for a lot of people, they, they realize that. They realize like, the most beautiful parts of the deification were being held back, and once they had this idea from Joseph Smith in place that, you know, let's get rid of this creation ex nihilo and this separation between man and God, and then all this beautiful theology that they already had and believed can actually make sense and then you know you can make that extra leap anyway i just thought you know that's kind of a thing that they recognize the truth in what the orthodox is teaching there what the orthodox church teaches but you know they there's always that disconnect without these other ideas
1: yeah still i suggest listening very carefully to what they have to say i think we've got a lot to learn from them i think you know it's important when John is talking about becoming sons of God, he's he's talking about the technotheu, the sons. And it really means we're literally offspring. I mean, there's a different term that's used in, in Acts Gainos, which is we're the same genus as God. But when you say we're the technotheu, we're literally offspring. We're The word techna means that we're made God. And so, you know, to say that we're the son of God has this double meaning in Greek. And it's really a very, very rich text,
0: so. Yeah, that's where I wanted to move into next. So you reference another scripture, Acts 17, 28 through 29, which sheds light on how a Mormon would read First John 3, 1 through 3, but it, you have to understand how they'd read these verses in Acts. So you, you say Mormons read those verses in Acts chapter 17 to state that we are the same genus as progeny of God in some literal sense, because that is literally what it says, the you point out the same thing you said before. The Greek says, in it, For as much as we are the offspring of God, and say that Greek word, genos, is not the same as the term used for sons of God when John speaks about being sons and daughters of God, which is technotheo in the scripture referring to First John 3, 1-3, through 3, or when Paul speaks about being adopted as sons of God. But the term in the Acts, the genos, is specific because it means we're the same like genus, you know, the same kind same species, and also in some sense that we are literally begotten, but in the sense that we are of the same kind. Anyway, now I kind of wanted to expound on what you were going into here about being children of God, because this is a differentiating point, and you have pointed out before that Joseph Smith taught the opposite of, that we came in like literal children of God, that we didn't exist in some form, or that our intelligence was not organized, and then God through some heavenly mother or or some other process organized our unorganized intelligence into this new being that is us and so therefore we are literally children of God so you've said that Joseph Smith's view is that our personal intelligence has always existed in some form you know it could be less organized or cognitive or have you know ways to experience itself than we do now but the core of it was there wasn't like just a bunch of different particles coming together and so in your view, you can't have a literal child of God, but you're saying being the same species as God is similar, but then you go a lot into what it means to be adopted as God's children, which there's all sorts of language in the New Testament about becoming sons of God or becoming followers of Christ, and therefore if you do that, then you're adopted into it. Let me just read this quote, and then you can talk more about that. So you say, We are not God's natural children in the same sense that we are adopted as God's children. We are adopted as God's children because we choose to enter into relationship with Him and through the enabling grace of the atonement. Thus, the relationship that is freely accepted is more like adoption than biological birth in which we have no choice. As eternal spirits or intelligences, we are God's genus or kin. However, we do not just grow into deified individuals simply because God is our Father in this genetic sense. Rather, We grow into the grace of deification because we accept the atonement of Christ and are united in the indwelling spirit in which God's life begins to grow in us as we enter into him. So I guess if you could just kind of point out the two aspects here because there is this adoption and becoming Christ's, if you will, sense of joining God's family or joining God, but then there's also the sense of already being of God somewhat. So can you explain your view on that and kind of how it is in the Mormon view in general?
1: So these are two, they're not competing, but complementary ways in which we're related to God. We're challenged to become something that, in a sense, we already are. We're already God's children in the sense that we're the same kind of being that God is already. We are uncreated beings. We partake of the same kind of being that he does. And we're on the same path that God is. And he has created and given us a path to become more fully like he is. So this is the sense in in which I would say that we are uncreated and there's no birth to intelligences, they're eternal. And I'll just leave it as an open question whether there is some kind of further organization. An intelligence being organized into a spirit, but I tend to think that that's not a good reading of either the scriptures or Joseph Smith, because Joseph Smith says that spirits are eternal and uses spirits and intelligences as synonyms of one another. He clearly had no notion that there was a you know a spirit birth, and that goes along with the fact that he really never taught about a mother in heaven. These are just things that are anachronistically read into his thought. I believe there are some suspects who read it into his thought. It's because that was their thought. In any event, to be adopted by God is to now choose freely, because the point is that it's like being born as a child. I mean, it it may be that you have parents, but not everybody loves their parents. I mean, that may be hard for some people to understand when they truly love their parents, but it is the case that there are kids who don't like their parents at all, And it's choosing into the relationship with God. So being adopted is a mutual choice where God gives us the highest honor. Remember, this is in the context of an honor and shame culture. God gives us the highest honor possible, and that is to be adopted as his own sons and daughters and inherit everything he has as a result. This is the greatest honor that can be bestowed by one individual on another in this culture and so that's what adoption means but it means more than that it means we have freely accepted the relationship that has been offered to us it's offered in sheer grace and beneficence but it's also accepted in love and gratitude for the beneficence of the mentor and all that's been done for us and so adoption is this new kind of relationship that is freely chosen instead of one that we just happen to exist in
0: and then a couple other points that aren't necessarily directly related to this scripture, but that you touched on that I wanted to talk about are the other sense of being created in the image of God and how from the scriptures, well, I'll just read what you say. So the believer in robustification also accepts that we are created in the image of God in a physical sense in addition to the sense that we are rational and morally responsible. So, for example, when God appears in theophanies or visions, such as in Ezekiel, he always appears in human form. So this fact supports the view that God actually bears such a human appearance. But you do point out, however, whether God is essentially embodied or has human appearance cannot be established by such visions. There is a possibility that the human form is one he assumes rather than one that he actually is. Nevertheless, When these theophanies are read in context with the assertion that humans are created in the image and likeness of God in the sense that they look like God, it strongly suggests that God either is or has chosen to permanently assume a physical form that is like human form in appearance. And isn't that just what Christianity necessarily claims? And you give some other proofs about, you know, whether or not, you know, we can't say for sure that that's the only... Maybe God could take another form. We can't say for sure based on the evidences of the Bible, but at least as far as the view of the Old Testament people that had a theophany, the text does paint God in some human form. And so most other Christians try to always refer to that stuff as being metaphorical or, um, you know, just anthropomorphizing. God so that we can understand him but you're saying if you're taking the text seriously you have to you know accept probably that God has a human form at least as he appeared to
1: these people Uh, anything else to say on that not a lot I mean I I think that says it And, and I just I think that it's important to recognize that it may seem like well how can they deny that God appears in human form It says numerous times in the Old Testament that he does appear in human form therefore he does have a human form What i'm saying is that's a non sequitur doesn't follow from the fact that he appears in human form that he in fact is a human form and there's a distinction there and so it's just not a good argument to say that the visions themselves however one would have to see in this you know especially in light of christianity that christ appeared in human form and it wasn't just something that was incidental it was essential it was the very point of, of what he was doing so What's happening is not just an appearance in human form, it's at least a a prefiguring of the fact that God would become human. And and I think this is an important point for Christians.
0: And then I just wanted to touch on this real quick, because I asked this question a couple times ago, and you seem to answer it here. So I'd ask kind of, in your view, if becoming deified was a moment or more of a process. But you have a quote here that kind of answers that. You say, It's also important to note that for believers in moderate and robust deification, salvation is a process and not merely an event as it is for believers in weak deification. So, there you go. And then you just point out that Robert Wilkin observed, One of the most significant discoveries of early Christian thinkers was that perfection was not a state at which one arrived, but continuous growth in the knowledge and love of God.
1: Yeah, so what he's doing is he's looking at the early Patristic Fathers, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, and others, and he's reading what they have to say. And what he is recognizing is that they all saw perfection not as some kind of limit that God had reached and that we're forever barred from reaching, but perfection rather is just the process of growing in knowledge and love of God. And so that's what defines perfection. That's the way that God is perfect. And I just thought it was an important recognition.
0: And yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. So next we'll move on to the next scripture, and Jacob's going to talk about that one.
2: All right, the next scripture is uh, once again a pretty popular one, one that we've mentioned quite a bit. So this is where it's talking about being one just as the Father and Son are one. And this is, of course, in John chapter 17. And I'll go ahead and just read Kind of what you say about it, and then you cite some of the verses where we really see it talking about defecation, and then we'll go through the the different modes. Uh, So you say, John 17 is a glimpse into the amazingly intimate prayer of Jesus, as it was known in the Johannine community. Uh, The sense of intimacy is so strong that the boundaries and barriers of alienation between father and son are dissolved, and the glory that Christ enjoyed with the father before he became mortal is restored to him during this prayer. Christ extends this same intimate union to the saints. And so now uh, we're going to be reading uh, verses 5, 10 through 11, and then 21 through 24, where it says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, and with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are, that they may be one as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovedst me before the foundation of the world. So in weak deification, what are they viewing this being one with Christ and with the Father?
1: We accept Christ and are justified to have the mind of Christ in us, which means that we are no longer subject to original sin.
2: Okay. So more or less what the same way they've interpreted the other scriptures. So, in moderate deification, how much more deified are we being?
1: They recognize that we share the same kind of relationship and we're glorified in God so that our love becomes divine love in the sense that our minds are enlightened and brought to the level of an understanding that surpasses mere mortal understanding. And that the kind of unity that we have is, is the unity of complete human love that participates in the immortal life of God. And so that's what it means in, in moderate deification or the orthodox tradition.
2: And now, obviously, the one we want to focus on, the robust deification. I'll go ahead and read what you have here, and then we can expound on that. Uh, you say the robust deification view accepts the language of Jesus literally. In the Gospel of John, the indwelling love of the Father and Son is shared by the disciples and is the basis of salvation for the disciples through a process of deification. Is there anything you want to expound on that before we jump into the quote from the lectures on faith?
1: No, I think, as a matter of fact, this quote from the seventh lecture is probably a good summation my entire reading of Mormon thought is based upon the recognition that Joseph Smith's entire mission is to teach us in many different ways, how to love one another in a way that we share the same kind of love that the Father has for us, and in so doing, we have been invited into and then participate in the relationship that the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost participate in, and that we are glorified thereby to the same extent because we share the same unity, the same knowledge, the same power have the same extent of influence, and we share everything that they are and everything that they have. But I think that that this statement from the lectures on faith is a good statement.
2: All right. Uh, So again, this is an excerpt from the seventh lecture on faith, and it says, The Father and the Son have the glory they have because they are just and holy beings. And if they were lacking in one attribute or perfection which they have, they could never enjoy the glory which they have, for it requires them to be precisely what they are in order to enjoy it. And if the Savior gives this glory to any others, he must do it in the very way set forth in his prayer to his Father in John 17, by making them one with him as he and the Father are one. In so doing, he would give them the glory which the Father has given him. And when the disciples are made one with the Father and the Son, as the Father and Son are one, who cannot see the propriety of the Savior, saying, These works that I do, shall they do also. And greater works than these shall they do, because I go unto my Father. That's in John 14:12. For any portion of the human family to be assimilated in their likeness is to be saved, and to be unlike them is to be destroyed. On this hinge turns the door of salvation.
1: Yeah, so like I said, I think that's a good summary. I would recommend to follow up on the podcast that we've done in the three volumes, read the seventh lecture on faith. It gives a very good summary and is still, I think, the best statement that's come out of the tradition regarding deification and what is entailed in deification.
2: And just going back over, so these various scriptural passages that we've read, obviously these ones that we've parsed out, Robustification seems to be the one that is more accurately described in each one of these. Do, do you think throughout the, the scriptural canon that there's a prevailing view of robust deification, or do you think there, there's justification in, in these other weak and moderate views to a, to a large extent as well?
1: I don't believe that robust deification is taught in the Old Testament. The notion that there is a council of gods and the the gods have become mortal is present. There are senses in which the the children of Israel are gods. They're made his children in a sense that he is now their sovereign god for initially just for Israel and then for the whole world. But I don't believe that you're going to get a statement of robustification anywhere in the Old Testament.
2: With that, I'll go ahead and finish with this quote here. You can expound on anything else if you'd like. But you say that these scriptural passages, ones we've been discussing, say precisely what robust deification claims. The fullness of the divine essence dwells in us, and we partake of the divine nature completely because Christ dwells in us and we in him, and he dwells in the Father and the Father in him. We are divine in the same way and to the same extent that Christ is divine when the fullness of divinity dwells in our hearts.
1: The only thing I have to add again is that Focusing on the relationship into which we have been invited and making it our life's endeavor is worthy of a life's endeavor, and it is what makes life worthwhile. We can't think of anything that is more valuable, more worthwhile for a human life, and more fulfilling, because the kind of beings we are, the kind of beings that flourish in loving, intimate relationships, where each is regarded as holy by the other, each is totally transparent and open to the other with nothing to hide and the love is so fulfilling that the kind of life that is lived is the greatest joy and happiness possible for human beings if you're asking can it get better than that i submit it cannot
0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash thought.